Thank you so much, Tommy. It is great to have you here and great to be led to the throne as we are every Sunday morning. Thank you, worship team, all of you who ever participate. And uh, David and Tommy have done a lot of ministry together over the years and grateful that you're stepping aside from your church today where you serve and being here with us. We have been uh, blessed. Well, I want to ask all of you, Think about this question. When you come to church on Sunday morning, what do you expect to find and what do you expect to receive? The music today was not too dissimilar from what it typically is. If you've been at a church for any length of time, you have some some expectations. I'm, I'm not talking about if you're going to a church for the very first time or maybe the second time, like I'm trying to figure this out. But when you go to a church where you have attended for a while, most likely you have a sense of the music, you know what the typical components of the service are. Tommy's not quite familiar with ours, so just the teeniest bit, but fortunately we just don't, you know, that's no big deal. Every once in a while when things don't go well in the service and someone feels badly about it, I'm, I'm like, it happens so seldom. That's a testimony to the, to the effort that goes into the service. But from your perspective, what are you looking for when you go to a service? <laughs> you have some idea of how long the sermon will be. And uh, Tommy, I hope you guys haven't made plans before like 1.30. The rest of these guys know, but you have some idea how long the, the, the sermon will be. You're able to discern patterns in the pastor's message. And personality, and since you know the church's doctrinal position, you likely know at some level what, what to expect with what is going to be preached. So how about your personal time in the Word? When you study privately, when you're in the Word on your own, when you commit to Bible reading and or Bible study, what do you expect to receive when you come to the Word? If you're a new Christian, you are likely fascinated with everything that you read unless someone has unwisely said, you should begin to understand Scripture by starting in the book of Leviticus or maybe Numbers. But one of those two, just unless that's the case, if you're in the New Testament especially or Genesis or the Psalms or or Isaiah as we're going to be pretty soon, you're, you're, you're just thrilled with whatever it is you're finding. I said something. I don't know what it is or did something or maybe I should, you know, I don't know. I got to see what's going on. Uh, it, so if, if you have been a committed believer for a while, though, you have some understanding of how Scripture is put together and how it works. When you come across apparent discrepancies in the text, Uh, you know that there's almost always a a way to reconcile uh, those differences. In fact, when somebody says, I don't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions, you would probably be safe in saying, no matter what level of understanding you have of Scripture, you'd probably be safe in saying, you know, I'm a Christian, and I think it's important that I know about those contradictions. Could you point them out to me, please? Most people, they've heard it, they say it, but they don't really know, well, it says this or it says that, and people surely don't live. We're going to jump into that a little bit later today. But you know <clears throat> that, that, there are, that, that there are answers for the discrepancies in Scripture. You know that there are times when a specific aspect of a truth is being emphasized, and it's only one part of the big picture. You know better than to take Jesus literally when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, you should just gouge it out. You know, you're not going to do that. You understand that he's employing hyperbole at a pretty high level. Uh, when 1 Corinthians 15 says, talks about baptism for the dead, you're like, uh, if you're like most uh, commentaries, you say, uh, I don't know what that means. In fact, I would be surprised if that's one of the reasons that there are so few good scholarly, conservative scholarly commentaries on the book of 1 Corinthians. Because they want to deal with that verse and several other in the book that's tough. But you, you know that even if you never understand it, you trust God to the level that there's an explanation. There's an understanding 
of Scripture. It's always wise to interpret Scripture with other Scripture and to interpret the obscure and less clear verses or passages of Scripture with deference to the clearer treatments on the subject. So bringing these two disciplines together, do this every once in a while, church attendance and Bible study, just want to share with you three goals that every preacher who stands up here on Sunday morning has as much as possible that follows through to every aspect of the service too. Uh, music and prayer time and even announcements. First is this, the exp- to explain the meaning of the text. You, you've probably heard people say, well, this is just what this scripture means to me. While it's necessary to draw application, if scripture is going to be meaningful to us, we need to be able to apply it to our lives. Uh, it's important to, to recognize that we have to know what this scripture means before we can legitimately say, this is what it means to me. If you just open the Bible and start poking around in it and say, well, this is what this verse means to me, you could get some crazy ideas about how God is working in your life. All authors of Scripture lived in contexts that shaped their writings uh, as the Lord so decided and directed. He, he put Isaiah in the place that he was in. He put uh, the, uh, Mark uh, along with the Apostle Peter and made sure that all of these things that happened in his life got recorded uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, When we come to a text, the grammar and vocabulary of the original language must be understood at a basic level anyway. The culture of the place and time in which uh, the passage was written is important, as are the circumstances surrounding a New Testament epistle or an Old Testament prophecy. You have to know what's going on so that what is being said will make sense. When you read the ancient text with a contemporary cultural context in view, you may miss the greater meaning or you may even misinterpret the text. So when Jesus told his disciples that they should wash one another's feet just as he had washed their feet, is that relevant for us today or was there a cultural component to that that no longer is in play today? Well, the elders have decided that we're going to do that. And, and right outside, there'll be pans of... No, I'm just kidding. We're not... We recognize this is a cultural setting. We don't have the same kind of uh, needs that they had in that day. We've got shoes. And so we don't... Our feet don't get dirty and nasty and need to be cleaned off as you come in. And when you understand the cultural context, that that, that particular task was reserved for the lowest of the slaves, the absolute lowest of the slaves, last man in, weakest, whatever. But they said, yeah, Brad Casey's going to be the one to uh, wash feet. That's who we're going to have wash feet around here. Now, I'm not going to stoop to that level. Then that takes even more, more meaning when you realize what Jesus did for his disciples. So anyway... I think you know the answer of whether it should be done today or not. Uh, That leads us to the second goal of Sunday morning preaching, and that is to connect the ancient with the contemporary. Which is worse, to be so heavy on application and just say, oh, God, speak to me, I'm going to open the Bible, and oh, God's telling me I need to get my car washed today. Not exactly sure how you'll get that, but somehow it may come up and you is it worse to be like that or to be so heavy on explanation that you have little or no concern for application now you may have a ready answer in your mind i would say that one is as dangerous as the other we just cannot do without both we need to understand what the text means and then we need to bring some application to our own lives there must be a balance of interpretation and application if we are to be rightly related to Scripture. And in order to be rightly related to God, we have to be rightly related to Scripture. doesn't mean we have to know everything there is to know about this. But we need to approach it with care and with, with, with the kind of seriousness that it deserves. Uh, many of you know Rosaria Butterfield, who used to be the head of uh, women's studies at Syracuse University. 
and uh, very strong LGBT rights uh, leader in the country and then converted and is now happily married to a pastor and they live in Durham. Uh, the McLaughlins and the Tallies were at a conference where she was speaking not too long ago and she said, you know, when I first became intrigued about scripture because of the graciousness of this pastor who invited me to dinner, he, he and his wife invited me to dinner, she said, I, I began to read Scripture as it was written. I'm a literary professor. I, I, I love literature. And I came to it as it was intended to come to. And I saw all of these different genres of scripture, scripture and the exceptional uh, writing that had occurred. And so I examined God in the ways that he had revealed himself. Now, look, she would have not come anywhere if, if he had not opened her eyes to understand uh, the truth that was in Scripture. But we need to take Scripture just as seriously. But we can't just say, oh, I can tell you anything you need to know about this book without then applying um, what we have learned. So, we could stop right there with our goals for Sunday morning sermon, but far better that we incorporate this third part of the design, and that is to provide some ways of helping you to understand the scripture that you're studying, provide some principles for interpreting scripture. Going to do some of that today because of um, uh, the, the, the difficulty of the text that we were in last week and that we're going to return to uh, today. So, if, if interpretation of scripture is necessary before proper application can be made, and if interpretation requires sources that are outside of the English version of the Bible, you're like, how can I know what the culture of that time was? How do I know about the original languages? All of God is the, is the English version here. Uh, then you need to know how to get the help that will increase your understanding of Scripture. Uh, we learned in this series on the solas this past fall, this fall about the dangers of of too few people having the responsibility to interpret the scriptures for the entire church. We also learned about the dangers of everybody being able to interpret the scripture and say things like, well, this is what this verse means to me, or this is how I understand it. It's like we said earlier, it's not that 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 um, anyone has a private interpretation of Scripture, but we're invited into a public uh, debate about Scripture. And that doesn't mean that everybody gets an equal say. It means those who have studied the issue get, to get together and make sure they're understanding Scripture according to the way God intended for it to be done. But it, it, it certainly keeps the Pope or just a handful of people saying, this is what it means, and in fact... We're going to add to the scripture. We believe this is straight from God, and you have to accept this just right, like you do the rest of, of the Bible. On Sunday mornings, it is good for, for the teacher to provide tools for studying scripture on your own, such as information about commentaries and Bible dictionaries and other resources for studies. And like I said earlier, we sometimes talk about principles of interpretation. Going to do that this morning. Look, I've said all of this because... Last Sunday's message created a bit of confusion about Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. What does he mean by that? Does he mean more or less than it would seem that he, that he means? Uh, it, the, the confusion stemmed primarily from my failure to give the bigger picture about when Christians should render biblical judgment or biblical discernment and when they should refrain from judging or to put it in ways that we understand a little bit better to, to keep from having a judgmental spirit which is pretty much all the time. We're not supposed to have a judgmental spirit but because of that I thought it'd be a great time to not only revisit the text but to just think about principles when you're interpreting scripture how that you can see when well, now wait a minute I, I know the Bible says this, but it says something else. How do you reconcile those two? It's especially difficult to understand Jesus' teaching sometimes. 
because he said some very graphic things that, that you're like, now wait a minute. And, and if you just take that on its own, then you're left a little bit bewildered. So this morning, we're going to think about how to interpret Scripture and when we should balance out a text, when we should exclusively concentrate on the text alone. Um, a few last words in this longer uh, than usual introduction. For those who are here for the first time or, or have recently begun attending Grace, you may hear something on Sunday morning that would cause you to think, I don't agree with that. Or, where did he get that from? I mean, where in the world did that come from? So, I, I want to encourage you if that's the case. Look, most people who end up staying at grace, most people who end up joining our body know it on the first time. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. And if, you, if you're not one of those that understood it on the first time, I applaud you for checking it out and giving careful attention. But the Lord... Oftentimes, in his, his spirit in our hearts just says, you know, this is the place. I can tell by what's happened on Sunday morning, and I can tell by the body and the ways that I've been welcomed that this is the place for us. Um, so if you will stay here for any length of time, I think you'll have a better understanding about our interpretation of Scripture. And I say our interpretation and understanding of Scripture, because in an elder-led church, gospel for teaching the truth, in fact, the elder's number one responsibility more than anything else, it's not to make sure that we um, manage the finances well, although we do, and the deacons do a lot of that, by the way. Uh, it's not that we are to make sure we've got enough events on the calendar. Our primary number one responsibility is to protect the flock of which we are a part. We, Jim McLaughlin often says one of the big problems about shepherding is that we're still sheep as well. So it's to protect the flock from heresy and from against, uh, from, from uh, protect the flock from uh, uh, false prophets. So you can be certain that if I or anyone who preaches on Sunday morning gets off track, the elders will help us to get back on track. So, Let's get to the portion of the text last week, taken from the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the portion of the text that it created a little bit of confusion. I'm really glad for this opportunity to, to just kind of work through this text, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. It is our custom here at Grace. We don't do it every Sunday, but most Sundays we stand for the reading of Scripture. And I will ask you if you would please stand out of respect for God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That's rather chilling, isn't it? And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Since I'm not saying this in the message, let me say it here. This is a term that Jesus used repeatedly for those who didn't know Christ. He is talking, though, to believers. We know that because of brother, he says so many times. Then he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. That's serious. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father, that is... Um, <laughs> It's rather a sobering verse to end the text, and yet it's the very words that Jesus gave to his disciples and all who were listening in, which could have been thousands. And Father, we desire to understand the meaning of that so that we might indeed apply the truth of Scripture, which is your way that you have revealed to us 
as to how we should live in this life. We long, uh, Lord, to please you, to love you with all of our hearts. We confess as we read texts like this that we recognize (laughs) that often that love is more directed toward ourselves than it is toward others or toward you. So open our eyes, open our hearts, and oddly, uh, in this text of rebuke uh, to believers, whether they were guilty of this or not, and most of us are at some point and maybe frequently, uh, even in this rebuke may we find encouragement and gratitude for what you have done for us. And may that cause us to live as Jesus would, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, as I stated last week, and, and I think all of you would agree, uh, Matthew 7, 1 is just one of the absolutely most misunderstood and currently abused texts in all of Scripture. When someone appeals to this verse and says, hey, don't judge me, don't judge me, or I didn't think Christians were supposed to judge, and yet you go around judging everybody then they are betraying both a misunderstanding of the text and a lack of balance in, in the rest of, with the rest of New Testament teaching on the matter of discernment and judgment. So what does it mean? Well, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but now we need to talk about a little bit more. We're heavy on number three today, talking about ways to understand and interpret Scripture. I want to give some principles for understanding and applying Jesus' teaches, teachings as they were recorded in the four Gospels. Uh, I promise I'll do my best not to take too long uh, with these principles, but it will help us if we first have a very limited guide to understanding Jesus' teaching and the rest of Scripture. First of all, Jesus taught with divine authority. That's one of the reasons that the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Because he claimed to be God. They knew a lot of the things that that we might not pick up. He fully was saying, I am God, and they got it. Some of the disciples didn't get it, and the Pharisees got it. And they were mad and angry with it, wanted to kill him. Second, Jesus often used extreme analogies to cut to the heart of the matter at hand. So, in fact, if we say cut to the heart, we don't think about taking a knife and, you know, cutting to the heart. But we're recognizing that that that's a piercing point that is being made. Much of the Sermon on the Mount is quite extreme. And it was so for a reason. It's not always easy to parse Jesus' words. We would never use Jesus' method of evangelism that he employed with the rich young ruler. If someone says to you, how might I be saved? You would never say, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. Now, that might be an indication that a person has really fallen in love with Jesus, but we would never say that is the condition or the requirement for salvation. But we understand this. Jesus knew what his idols were. I heard a pastor say one time, and I got what he was saying. He said, I wish somebody would ask me if I have to quit chewing gum to get saved. And I would say yes, you know, because if it stands between you and anything that stands between you and Jesus... And again, we don't think like that because that's sort of a works mentality. And yet Jesus had no problem confronting this guy right where his idols were. He said, you can't, as he said in many other places, you cannot serve both God and money. It has to be one or the other. So when we come to Jesus, we come full of, 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 or or." I should say empty. We, we, we say, Lord, I, I give it all up. That doesn't mean you're going to live perfectly by any means, but I repent of my sin and I give my life. I will follow you with your help for the rest of my days. We get the point that Jesus was making, though. The man's money was idle. Third, as direct as Jesus' instructions often were, they were nuanced and thus They require study in comparison with other scripture if we're going to get the full benefit of the lesson. Indeed, that's why we're revisiting the message today. When Jesus said, 
do not judge. Does that mean that we are never to discern right and wrong behavior by those outside the church or, or those inside the church? Heavens, no, that's not what it means. But, but what caused confusion last week was when I said Jesus was saying, don't judge, period. Now, that was in the context of this particular text, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But no, Jesus is not saying don't judge. It's in Matthew's gospel, after all, that, that, that the uh, guidelines for church discipline, the model for church discipline is given. In fact, what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 is as opposite as it can possibly be in Matthew 18 when you think about this. Church discipline requires the body as a whole to say to an individual who is living in sin, unrepentant sin, it requires us to judge believers. So, there's a bigger picture often. Fourth, as the New Testament interprets the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel, so the epistles interpret the four gospels in the book of Acts. Now look, this may be difficult for some of you, but this is a very important principle of interpretation. Things that don't make sense when you read what Jesus said or things that happen in the book of Acts begin to make sense when you read the epistles. Why did Jesus quote Psalm 22 on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the epistles tell us that at the cross, God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. Begins to take shape and make sense. Why do you think none of the disciples understood that Jesus was going to die Right up until the very end, they were talking about who would be the greatest in the king of, of heaven and who would sit on Jesus' right hand and left hand. And then all of a sudden, he's being dragged away by soldiers and crucified. They did not have the Holy Spirit at that particular point. And, the, and, and they didn't understand the teaching that, that how all that the Old Testament had said and, and all that Jesus was saying was pointing to the cross and was pointing to his salvation in that manner. The epistles explain all of this, though. So, when you read a verse like, judge not that you be not judged, even the epistles are going to have something to say, although Jesus has a lot to say. Fifth, study paragraphs, not sentences, for better interpretation. Look, you pull one verse out of Scripture, you can make it say just about anything you want it to say. No joke. I mean, we, we, there's so many cults based on someone just pulling something out and not synthesizing with all of Scripture, not recognizing that this is a part of the whole. The three most important principles for interpreting Scripture are context, context, and context. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called for believers to judge uh, righteous and unrighteous behavior. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray for show, who publicly fast and call attention to their good works. Understanding the scripture that surrounds the text helps with interpreting the text itself. So sixth, although a full understanding of a topic is <clears throat> necessary to balance extreme points that we encounter in Scripture, it is important not to miss the Holy Spirit's intended impact by always giving the other side of what is being said. Look, I've been accused of this <laughs> over the years, actually. Uh, you always have to, you say this, the Scripture states very powerfully, but then you say, but then there's the other side. I recognize we have to, to balance things out. But sometimes the scripture says things for a specific effect and, and, and specific intention. And if we're constantly saying, well, that says that, but you've got to realize this and that and the other. And that's what I meant by Jesus is saying, don't judge, period, because it's going to come up in the text what exactly he was saying or what I think he was saying. Look, we all understand the necessity of preaching the whole truth. But when Jesus used such extreme analogies, like a man was forgiven a debt of $200 million, yet he refused to forgive a debt of about $20, 
Well, so I wonder what he means by those numbers. I think we, we know what he means by those numbers. It was just like we have a debt that we can never repay. So why in the world are we grabbing our brother or sister by the throat and say, pay me what you owe me? He's just making a point. Don't, don't go there because you've been forgiven more than you could ever possibly know. And, 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 and his point is to stop the conversation when you say, well, yeah, but you just don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what's happened to me. Bible says, when others sin against you, tell them their offenses. It does say that, absolutely. But do not miss what God wanted to tell you about your own sin. Then last, we learn in layers. Some truths that don't make sense now will make sense later. Look, if you agree, if you disagree with something that you hear a, a Bible study teacher or someone here on Sunday morning teaches, you may be right. And you may not be right. Look, we, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord is a process that happens over time. I've said this before, and it's a risky thing. I know it's a risky thing to say, but the elders agree with me. If you have not changed your mind about some position in Scripture, that's a significant position, not one of the major doctrines. I'm not talking about the Word of God, the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, salvation by grace through faith. I'm not talking about any of those, but some of the, like for instance, the second coming. You know that Jesus is coming, but maybe you don't think quite as in the same manner that you did 10 years ago, or maybe at least you're You've got a little more doubt about how it's going to all happen. I'm not as sure as I used to be about that. If there's never any of that doubt, never any of that movement in your mind, are you really growing? Are you growing in your understanding of Scripture? It seems pretty clear that most people understand more and more as they go. You can even see a progression of the understanding of the apostles' understanding of the gospel. As they go through Acts and as they write their epistles at different points, God helps us to grow in our understanding. There are some foundational things that absolutely must not ever be not only sacrificed, but even up for debate in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But there are some things that you see a lot clearer now than you used to. And so we finally come to our text, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And I hope we arrive more prepared to examine it. I'll repeat some of what I shared last week, but I'll approach it as if you've never heard me say this before in your natural born life. When Jesus said, judge not so that you might not be judged, he was talking about believers judging other believers. Now, we know that because three times in verses 3 to 5, he talks about the, your interaction with your brothers. In other words, this courtesy, do not judge others, do not have a judgmental spirit towards others, is first and foremost reserved for relationships inside the covenant family of God, which by no means <coughs> encourages you to now go out and judge unbelievers and, and to call down fire from heaven. On them. That didn't turn out too well for James and John in Luke chapter 9. They were about to go through Samaria. The Samarians saw that they were going to go to Jerusalem. And they said, you're not coming through here. Go around the long way. James and John said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? It just tells us that Jesus rebuked them. <coughs> I imagine there was a little bit of silence. So can't you just see Jesus going, what? No! No! Or whatever they did in that day, you know. Um, what Matthew 7 tells us is that we have to be careful about the ways that we treat other believers. We know that Jesus is not calling for us to suspend all judgment. Again, he's already said, don't be like the hypocrites. Well, you have to exercise some level of discernment and judgment if you're not going to be like the hypocrites. When he says a little later in chapter 7, you will know them by their fruits, he was referring to false prophets. False prophets. He wasn't talking about other believers. He was saying you'll know them by their fruits because they're, they're preaching a false gospel. Furthermore, 
Even though there is the command in Matthew 7, 1, not to judge, the New Testament calls believers many times to use good judgment in correcting other sins and in in dealing with church member sins. Even though the church leadership um, is assigned most responsibility, uh, or or church leadership is assigned to the elders for most of the areas of, of oversight in the church, when it comes to church discipline, The entire body is brought into it. Listen, I pray that we don't have that day. When we have a person who is openly and unrepentantly living in sin. But if that day comes, the elders will say, this person is living in sin. And it is our recommendation to the church that we exercise church discipline. And think about this. Think about this. Essentially, church discipline is saying we have concluded because of your actions and your unwillingness to repent that you are not a believer. And we exclude you from the table. We don't exclude you from coming to worship with us, but we exclude you from the table because this is a family meal. And so that's a serious issue of judgment. A serious discernment that would have to be made for the entire body. And then we would raise our hands and do it like that. And you would have to make a decision. Again, let's pray that that never happens. And we have decided this, that if ever there's a case that looks like it's heading that way, we will ask you to pray for us without giving any details, any names. Just we are involved in a situation. We need prayer because we don't want it to get... To that place. Essentially, I'm just saying that absolutely scripture calls us to exercise discernment. But that was not Jesus' point in Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Jesus was calling us to be extremely reluctant to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ, assigning motives to them that we don't know they possess and always looking for the worst in others, which we often do so that we can exalt ourselves. Don't don't you just feel good about who you are when you just cannot believe what sister so-and-so is doing, brother so-and-so. I can't. I cannot believe that. There's just this little smugness that comes up. You know, again, wouldn't it be something if we could just, if the Lord would make our face. (laughs) Yeah. Stick our nose up in the air. Why are we not allowed to do that? And by the way, I I heard someone say, it's really a, a good way, it's a good helpful way to understand what it means to judge other people. It means... You know, if I say, Neil Manning, I know what you're thinking. That may be because that's what I'd be thinking if I were in his shoes, you know. And, but he, that may be the furthest thing from his mind. And who am I to be saying, judging him, saying, I know what you had in mind. It's not a, a good way to be. Why should we not? Jesus said it's because we have more than enough sin in our own lives to deal with. In the New Testament, over and over, we're told to overlook. Get this. Overlook other people's sins. Not their personality quirks or their preferences, but their sins for goodness sake. 1 Peter 4.8 sums this up as well as any verse in all of Scripture. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. First of all, don't miss those first two. Above all. Almost every time you see love held up as the standard for believers in the New Testament, it's finally the the crown of all Christian character and and the defining fruit of the Spirit. Love. It's love. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Why do we need to love? Because we're going to sin against each other. And we need to forgive each other. We need to give other people 
the space that we want everybody to give us. Look, it's all part and parcel of you deserve. You know, we don't deserve anything. But hell, and Jesus is saying to Christians over and over, how dare you? How dare you look around and just be so smug in your, don't do that. So whenever possible, we should overlook sin against us. Look, there are times when we must deal with the sin. But again, that wasn't Jesus' point in the text. He knows our tendency to look for the bad stuff in other people. So when Jesus said, get the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly enough to perform, think about it, the delicate task of removing the speck of dirt from your brother's eye. It's not just something you just say, here, let me just take a handkerchief. No, no, you're very, you're very careful. The, the person is like, whoa, whoa. And you're saying, let me, let, let me help you with that. I don't think his emphasis was to take care of your own business so then you can take care of your brother's business. And he's like a parent. When the child says, well, why do I have to clean my room? My sister's room is, you know. And, and, and the parent says, you, take, you go clean your own room. Then you can worry about your sister's room. Peter, does that mean you clean up your room so then you can gripe about Betsy? No, it just means get, take care of your own mess. You let me worry about Betsy. That's what, that's what that means. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Just how can you walk around looking for specks of dirt in everybody's eye when you've got this log hanging out? And who's got the log hanging out? Every single one of us. Not just, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I mean, I can't help but think of two or three. No, I'm just kidding. I, I promise you, I, I'm not. I'm not. You know why? Because my log is as big as anybody's hanging out of my eye. So what Jesus is saying here, don't be judgmental. Don't worry about your brother and your, or your sister. You worry about yourself. And then, verse 6. How in the world do you interpret this verse? Do not give dogs. I, I thought I had gotten away with it last week. But uh, since I messed up the other, i got to go ahead and talk about this today. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, first of all, does verse 6 belong with verses 1 to 5, or is it in probably most of your Bibles, if you look, it's, it's a different paragraph, and it stands all on its own. It's just a it's kind of on its own. But most scholars think that this is connected with those other verses. Um, so I would like to suggest that whatever conclusion you reach about this verse is just like every other conclusion reached on this verse. is speculation. I don't know that any of us can know for sure exactly what Jesus meant here And you may base your conclusion on what a scholar or another believer, what you heard a pastor say one time, Bible say, but I doubt anyone knows for certain. Most conservative scholars would say that this is akin to Jesus talking on the unpardonable sin. When people said, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, by the way, just again, it's a matter of interpretation. When, when, when people... Worry, they say, oh, I think I said something. I cursed the Holy Spirit one time, and now there's no way I can be saved. If you're worried about being saved, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. If you want to be able to... What was happening? Jesus was interacting with these scholars, these, these, these teachers of the law who knew the Scriptures inside out and who He rebuked many times for not understanding who He was. He says, the Scriptures... Point to me. You think just because you know the Old Testament, you have eternal life, but you're missing the whole point. The Scriptures point to me. So he's talking with them, and they say, well, whatever you do, you didn't come from God. You came from the devil. And Jesus essentially said, look, your hearts are so hardened. It's too late. You're done. Your sins will never be forgiven. But when you understand that a lot of Jesus' ministry and a lot of the parables that we're looking, oh, how can I see this and what should I learn from this or really just identifying lost and unlost, lost, uh, lost and saved, I mean. 
unlost, that's a new term I've invented for, for believers. So, um, but, but he's, he, he's just identifying. He's saying, these guys, you know, like, you think about that. Remember that parable Jesus was telling? And this is the way it happened in that day. He would tell stories. They didn't, people didn't have movies. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have, you know, you couldn't just pick up a good novel and read it. So storytellers were in high demand. They were, they were some of the superstars of the day, and Jesus was an exceptional storyteller. And a lot of times philosophers, they would debate back and forth with people. And so when you see Jesus asking questions, you would think that they, a lot of times the Pharisees would just say, be quiet, but no. First of all, they thought they could best him. They always thought they could bring him, cut him down to size, and they could get the best. Well, of course, it never worked out very well for him. But, but they were, Jesus said there was a certain man who had some property and a long ways away, and, he, and it was time to collect taxes, so he sent a servant, and, and they beat him up, sent him back. He kept sending servants, and they were beaten, and finally they were killing someone. They killed some of the servants, and he said, well, I'll send my own son because my son, they'll respect him. They'll know what this means if they mess with my son like that. And they, um, so the son went, and they killed him. And Jesus said, what will the owner do then when he comes? And they said, they'll tear him apart. He'll tear him apart from shred to shred. And he said, exactly I'm the son of God. And they're like, hey, 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 you, you, wait a minute. All of a sudden they realized they were these guys in the, char- in, in the story. They were these characters. So Jesus often just identified saved, unsaved. None of us, I don't think any of us really have enough discernment that we can be able to say that. And so that gives me a little bit of problem thinking that this verse, do not give dogs what it's holding. In other words, just quit sharing the gospel with them. They don't want to hear it, don't share it. Again, I don't know that we can get that discernment. Here's one thing that I read that makes a lot of sense to me. Almost everybody believes that the pearls here, the gospel, some say even believers. And Jesus is saying, when you judge one another and you bicker and you fight amongst yourselves, and the world sees that, you're just throwing the gospel on the ground. And they don't like it. Look, you didn't want to... The dogs that he's talking about here, packs of wild dogs that roam, you didn't want to meet the, these dogs on the countryside. You pigs were unclean animals, and Jesus was saying, take care of the gospel. Be careful how you treat it. And one of the ways that we take care of the gospel is the way that we treat one another. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not. It's all, though, that truth is so... Scripture is pregnant with that truth. Everywhere you go, you see that the ways that we treat one another makes a big difference in the way that the world looks at and responds to the gospel. So, regardless of the interpretation of verse 6, we are called to love one another and to avoid a judgmental spirit. And so, as we close this morning, I just want to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to ask you a few questions. Brothers and sisters, do you feel more affinity with those who share your belief in the gospel or with those who share your political views? Brothers and sisters, I promise you that even as I speak, I am sitting, listening, and examining (laughs) with these words. Brothers and sisters, are you so insecure 
that the only way you can feel good about yourself is to judge others. Brothers and sisters, is your trust in God's love for you so weak that you care more about what others think of you than what the scripture says is true about who you are in Christ? It is time for all of us to lean on the grace of God through Christ and to give our brothers and sisters a break. Lord, there's so much in your word that it's overwhelming. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, but in the case, it's beautiful and delicious even so. It's not that we're knocked over by the force, although surely the truth of your word calls us to examine our hearts. Lord, may we love you. And if we love you, we'll love your word. And even when it doesn't say what we want it to say, we'll thank you for not allowing us to live in any way that, you, that we want to live. That you care enough uh, to draw us uh, back to yourself. May we have a deep and abiding love for one another. We need that always. And we are always conflicted with that natural man that lives inside of us who is looking to judge someone else. Deliver us, Lord, in this moment and for this time and then remind us when we need it again to love one another earnestly, to keep on loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. And Lord, one of the ways that we show love for one another and, and for the world is through the benevolence offering that we take on the last Sunday of every month. And so we do so today and we come asking your blessing on this offering and on the hearts that give. And for those who have need and maybe they are those who have no idea that very soon they will have need. Make us gracious in every way, both to receive and to give. We pray in Jesus' name. From the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of Yahweh the Lord be praised. And all God's people said,